Okay, this week is week five, God with us, which most of us know is Emmanuel, right? And it's cold outside, so you know where I'm going with this, right? Did anyone else just really want to sing Christmas songs this week? Thank you. I, 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 I suggest even that we do it. I suggested that at the Tuesday study and practically got booed out of here. But as soon as Jack Lanterns come out, I want to sing Christmas carols. I absolutely love them. And Emmanuel, God with us, is what we have studied for the past week. That's the big idea tonight as we review what you guys have been studying all week is that Jesus ushered in a better way to have God's nearness. Jesus ushered in a better way to have God's nearness. I loved the last two weeks of study. It was such a joy to listen to Alex teach last week. I sat in that chair and just soaked up everything that she said, learned so many new things, and was thankful for her bravery and her willing spirit to do that. I hope that you guys uh, we're able to glean some good things from the tabernacle, as obscure as it felt at times. I hope that you saw that, um, you know, ultimately, what was the tabernacle saying to God's people? That, that he wanted to be with them and that he could be known to his people. Those were mind-boggling truths to the people. I hope you also concluded with me that the tabernacle told us about God's character. We looked at so many different aspects of that. Uh, someone's home tells much about them, right? So God's house was going to tell God's people much about him. I think we looked briefly at, you know, if you walked into the courtyard, the very first thing that you saw was the brazen altar. Right away, you're learning something about God, that he cannot be approached without a sacrifice, without the spilling of blood. I hope that this can really get into your mind so that you can refer to this at other times in your life and other Bible studies. But think about that. If you were to walk into my home, you would learn about me right away. You would learn about what I prioritize and, and what you would learn of my character. If you guys would have come to my home like seven years ago in Colorado, what you would have seen, and I just had one sweet little baby on the hip and thought I could, you know, take over the world. You would come in and you would see vacuum lines. And you would be like, wow, this house is clean. And then you would go in a little bit further. And on my fridge, you would see my incredible menu plan right next to Micah's nap schedule. Down to the minute. And what would you conclude right then? That I'm crazy. Right? <laughs> or maybe if you're a little bit like me that way, you would have been like, awesome. <laughs> so, but you would see that at that time in my life, one of my top priorities was order. And, and that was because I was adjusting to becoming a mom. And it was like my coping mechanism. I needed order. And I was home a lot. If you came into my house today, you could look for vacuum lines, but I don't know how often you would find them. On the fridge, you would see my kids' artwork, and it would be surrounded by sticky fingerprints, right? You would see probably multiple stains on my carpet, and you would wonder, what in the world are those from? That looks disgusting. <laughs> so what would you conclude there? Your first conclusion wouldn't necessarily be order, but maybe as you saw shoes all over the place, you would say, okay, this is a busy house. So maybe what this season of life, what they prioritize is actually that life would be full and that there would be an open door. I hope, if you're giving me the benefit of the doubt, I hope that that's what you would actually conclude. 
as you came into my home. And we got to go into God's house and we got to say, what do we learn about him? Right? We got to see the gold. We got to see the fine materials that told us that of his deity and told us of his glory. We got to see, um, like I said, that the, both the altar and then the place for washing. And, and we started to put these puzzle pieces together. In this last week, what you studied was how Jesus is the better tabernacle, how Jesus is the better high priest, and how he is the better lamb. And those are our three points for tonight. What you got to in this last week of study was a summit, essentially. You got to a summit, not the summit, and not necessarily a false summit. But we got to this point of saying, oh, I get it that all of this old tabernacle system is pointing to something greater. And we got to see that how God would dwell with his people is that he would come near to his people through Jesus and that that would forever solve the problem of separation from God. We got to see how the Gospels and how Hebrews fulfilled a lot of the Old Testament. So let's just jump right in with Christ was the better tabernacle. We're going to kind of jump all over the the book of John and Hebrews tonight. It is a, a hefty assignment to try and understand Hebrews in one week of study. Um, So I don't pretend that this was an exhaustive study at all. It's an awesome book that we could probably study for a whole year and and glean lots of goodness from. So um, we are just going to try and move right along. So Christ was the better tabernacle. The scripture that I took you to in your homework was a verse that we've heard so many times this semester, John 1.14. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we have learned that that translation of the word dwelt meant tabernacled. So that says, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It actually turns the word tabernacle into a verb, which is kind of weird, but that's actually what it means. So for us to fully understand that, what do we need to ask? We need to say, okay, what did the tabernacle and the temple mean to God's people, to the Jews? Well, that was where heaven touched earth. That is, that is where they could understand, okay, God is living with us. God's glory is here with us. So that is exactly what John is saying about Jesus here. This is where heaven touches earth. In Jesus, we understand that this is how God will dwell with man. And this is where we will see God's glory. God is living with us. He's moving in. He is setting up camp. He is pitching a tent in human skin for us. So as the tabernacle told God's people about God, Jesus was now going to tell them about God. He was going to reveal who God was to them about his character and his covenant, about what the the revelation was going to teach them about this relationship. We were able to see in the last two weeks so many promises of Jesus as we did those looking forward, things that we saw in the tabernacle that hinted at Jesus. We saw the bread of life, and I think Alex said it, was this continual providence of God. I thought that was powerful. As the bread of the presence was laid out, that is pointing us to the fact that Jesus was going to be the bread of life. We saw the lampstand and looked at, okay, Jesus is 
the light and therefore we are to be the light. And remember how it was, it was covered in humble goat skin on the outside and then it was brilliant on the inside. I heard it said that much the same is it's for Jesus, humble on the outside, housing the glory of God on the inside. Isn't that beautiful? He was humble on the outside. Nothing that would make us look twice at Jesus. No beauty that we would recognize him, but housing the glory of God on the inside. And in fact, we read in Hebrews this week that they, meaning the Old Testament system and tabernacle, they were to serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. So let's really talk about what that means. I think we've seen it a couple points now, this idea of a shadow or a copy. What does a shadow actually tell us about something? I think that shadows can either scare us or comfort us. I think probably a lot of us think scare first, but John Piper uses a really great illustration um, where he talks about pretending that you're a young girl again and you're in the grocery store and you notice that you got separated from your mom. And so you start to feel scared. But as you walk down the, towards the end of the aisle to go look for her, maybe you see her shadow start to cast on the ground as she comes near you. And you immediately feel comfort from that shadow. Why is that? Because it's pointing to a reality. And that's how it is with Jesus. Jesus is saying that, that he is pointing, that these things are pointing to something better. What is better? Well, he's saying what's better than the rituals of the Old Testament system is the relationship that Jesus was going to usher in. So he's saying we don't need any more man-made constructs for religion. Now that religion was moving into the hearts. What did this shadow say? It says that God wants to be near to you, and that brought comfort. In Matthew, Jesus even said, something greater than the temple is here. And we might be tempted to just breeze through that because of our perspective of reading this many years later. But what do you think a Jewish audience thought when they heard Jesus say something better than the temple is here? They could not comprehend that. Because what they needed, what they thought they needed was this temple and this ability to bring a sacrifice because that was the only way that they could live in nearness to God. Jesus is saying, no more shadows. Now there is the reality. There is God with you. There is Emmanuel. And he follows that up by saying, and I desire mercy, not sacrifice. To be his audience there and to hear he doesn't desire sacrifice, I think that would take some time to understand what it is that he meant. So how is Jesus better? In your homework, you unpacked Matthew 8, where we see that he is better. Jesus is better because he ushered in a new covenant, right? Rather than the old, we now have this new covenant. So let's compare the new from the old, from Hebrews chapter 8. So in in the Old Testament, where was the law written? We're going to do a little participation. On the stones. From, from Hebrews 8, where is the law now written? On our hearts. In the Old Testament, we, we hear talk about rebellious children. And in that side of the covenant, it was just full of rebellious children. From these verses, we hear these beautiful familial terms that we are his beloved children. 
In the Old Testament, who would you say knew God from what we've studied of the tabernacle? Who actually got to interact with God? The high priest, yeah. Who is he saying will know God from these verses? He says all will know him. We have briefly touched on the fact that the Old Testament system made them remember their sins over and over again. But in this new covenant, we get to read this crazy truth that he will remember our sins no more. That doesn't mean God is forgetful. That just shows us the extent of his forgiveness through Jesus' blood. The Old Testament covenant, the old covenant, we see this that the both sides have a have a, a, a side to hold up. You know, and, and if, if the people rebelled, that, that they were going to experience distance from God and that they were going to receive punishment and exile. This new, test, this new covenant should blow us away because God is making it all about his faithfulness. And if we are covered in Christ's blood, then there is no sin that can separate us from him. In this way, we see that Jesus is better as he ushered in the new covenant. We see the ways that Jesus as the tabernacle is truly better. There's an application that popped off the page to me here that really hit hard with me. As I saw this this truth that Jesus was saying that the personal needed to replace the ritual and that there was no longer a need for a man-made construct of religion, I found myself asking in my own life, has the personal replaced the ritual? And that first answer, we would all say, of course. I don't make sacrifices. I don't just follow these strict laws all the time. But then another level of question came to me that maybe what I need to be asking is, is there more internal love for Christ than external? Is there more godliness on the outside of my life than on the inside of my life. And that's when I felt really convicted. Is is there more impressiveness and and godliness just on the outside in what you guys see than there is on the inside? And if so, then I haven't fully accepted that what Jesus ushered in What's better? What Jesus is ushering in is something that comes from the law that's written on our heart. We are invited to have more godliness in the intimate places of our heart, in the secret times of our week, than what we show to one another even. I mean, it's a form of insincerity towards one another. It's a form of of being a Pharisee. When what you guys see in me is actually better than what's in my heart, then I am still stuck in some old ways that Jesus has said, I'm better than this. I have brought in what is better. When Jesus says that he desires mercy, not sacrifice, I have to struggle with that because sometimes it is a lot easier to bring a sacrifice than to have a merciful heart. For me, it is a lot easier to do the right things and to have good church attendance and to fill my week with external things of religion than it is to have mercy on someone that has hurt me. 
to have mercy in an area of life where I would rather be hard or doubtful or critical? When Jesus says he desires mercy, not sacrifice, I have to think twice before I nod saying that, that I get that. But the true tent, as we saw this week, is better. The ministry of this better tent is superior as Jesus is our better tabernacle. Let's move on. Second point, Jesus is the better high priest. We kind of saw this sprinkled throughout all three chapters of Hebrews this week. A couple of the verses that I think capture it well is Hebrews 9, verse 11 and 12 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Last week, we looked good and hard at the Old Testament priesthood. We learned a lot. We saw that the priests were dressed for splendor and glory, right? We learned that the the priests were the intercessors and the mediators between God and man, and that they were to teach the Israelites about God. Well, in the New Testament, we are seeing that Jesus is the ultimate high priest, that he is the better high priest. Where did we see this? We saw in Hebrews all of these ways that he is better. We know that the Old Testament priests and the New Testament priests, they had to make sacrifices first for who? Themselves, because they were a sinner, right? They were just a normal man born into the right family, you could say. Right? It's not like this was a job that they applied for. No, like you were just born into it. If you were a Levite, then you were a priest. So first they had to make sacrifices for themselves and then for the people. Not Jesus. Right? He would never need to make a sacrifice for himself because he was holy and blameless. We read that in the Old Testament, the priest, their sacrifices, they could, they could not perfect the conscience of the people. But Jesus through his sacrifice as the priest, he secured for us an eternal redemption. Those are strong words. I like that phrase a lot. In the Old Testament, um, we saw that they could not purify our conscience from dead works like Jesus could. How often did the Old Testament priests have to make sacrifices? Every day, and then the Day of Atonement, once once a year, every day, several times a day, they had to make these sacrifices. How about Jesus? We read, sacrificed once and for all. And then what did he do? We read that he sat down at the right hand of God, showing that his work was done and that he was the victor. We see that the Old Testament priests were consecrated and given position by the law. We see that Jesus was given this position by God. He was given an oath by God. Those Old Testament priests, they were just mortal men. They would, you know, make intercession for the people, but then they would die. And we know that Jesus will live forever, giving us a much better hope than what the Israelites were given. I'd like to see how, just like you know, the, the priests were, were 
uh, a man, obviously, so they could relate with this side of the relationship. They could relate with mankind. But then they would come to God, and I think, like Alex said, they were unique, and they were held to such a high moral standard, and that allowed them to be the ones that could go before God. They were called to that high moral standard. Well, how much more did Jesus do that? He actually was God. He was part of the Trinity, but he became a man. And not just that like he came and posed as a man, but he actually became a man who felt the same temptations and weaknesses that we feel. How else was Jesus a priest? We didn't hit on all of these in our homework because there was just too much. But there's other ways that we see throughout the New Testament that Jesus was like a priest. He served the people as the priest did. Several points in our study this week, we or this semester, we have seen that priests are, are kingdom workers. They were the workers of the tabernacle. They were the workers in Eden. They were servants. Jesus came as the greatest servant of all. He washed his disciples' feet. The priests were often called to heal people. People would bring them their sick and they would tell them what sacrifice they needed to make to maybe atone for the sin so that they could be healed. How often do we see Jesus as the healer? Or how about this little story we've heard where Jesus is in a crowd. He's moving his way through a crowd and a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years reaches out. What does she touch? robe. Where have we seen a robe on the priest? I just think that's so cool. Like She understood that, at least to an extent, that he was an intercessor between her and God. So she reached out and all she had to do was touch the corner of his robe and the power of God came out and healed her. Guys, she was, she was bleeding. Blood made you unclean. That means that she could never go in to the presence of God. She could not approach God because she was deemed unclean. And this is Jesus coming near to her as the great high priest and healing her. Jesus is also called the Holy One of God in John 6. Do you recall that that is what Aaron is called? The Holy One of God. We also see that Jesus, like a priest, lives to make intercession for us. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus lives to make a petition for you and for me. That is crazy. That is what he is doing with his time right now, is he is bringing your name before God. Just like the Old Testament priests would carry the names of the Israelites on those stones into God's presence, Jesus now carries your name and carries your burdens, your requests, your problems, your sins, your anxieties, your situations. He carries those before God. He lives to make intercession for us. A member of the Godhead prays for us. That should blow us away. Jesus is the better high priest. 
And in our workbooks this week, we also went back to Hebrews 4, where we read that our high priest, Jesus, feels everything that we feel. This is a verse that was probably known to a lot of us. In verse 14, it says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Picture that priest passing through the outer courtyard and then the inner room and then into the Holy of Holies. We have this high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. How do you think those Israelites thought when they were bringing their sacrifice before a priest that has seen hundreds upon thousands of people every week just going through this monotonous routine of making sacrifices, do you think they felt like that priest was sympathizing with them? But was there a chance that that priest had sinned in the exact same way that that Israelite had? Yes. But now we have this great high priest, high priest who was tempted in every way that we are, who in every respect has been tempted, yet without sin, and he sympathizes with our weakness. Therefore... Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus does not keep our mess at a distance, but he comes all the way into relationship with us. He rubs up, rubs up against us no matter our diseases or our rebellion or our sickness. He does not avoid messy people. He does not just sit there and judge people in their sin, but he sympathizes because he let himself experience those things and yet never gave into it. Let's take this one more step then. If we are called to be a royal priesthood, like it says in 1 Peter, then what do we do with this example of Jesus? If he is a great high priest and we are now told that we are a royal priesthood, we are the workers in God's kingdom, our job is to reflect him, to do his work, to serve. Maybe we also should sympathize with one another's weaknesses. I am not great with this. In our marriage, my husband is the one that you want to go to if you're having a bad day. Because he will listen and he will nod and he will mean every sympathetic look that he gives you. You start talking to me and I'm like, don't preach, don't preach, don't preach, don't preach. It's so hard for me to just sit there like I'm called to and actually sympathize with someone. Mostly because of my own selfishness. Because of my own pride. And my unwillingness to reflect my great high priest in this way. But maybe that is our application from this that we need to be willing to get messy with one another. We need to be willing to draw near to the person who is messy. We need to let them come into our lives. We need to go out there and love them. We need to carry their names before the throne of God and actually care what happens to them. We need to be willing to be a faithful presence for people. So a specific way that we can apply this, that we can be the royal priesthood, is intercession. What did a priest's day look like? We know that they made sacrifices for the people. 
that they carried those burdens before God. But what else did they do? They lit the lampstand and they, they lit the altar of incense. Every morning, they would light that lamp and they would regularly offer up this altar of incense. It was just this mundane routine. You know, we looked at the Day of Atonement and there was all this flair and drama and white clothes. Once a year, there was this exciting day of the, this Day of Atonement. But every other day of the year, what those priests were asked to do was mundane, routine service for God's people. And we will have times in life where we are called to do something big and exciting for the church, something that like brings change right away, and we celebrate it, and we, we, we all celebrate together. But most of the time, what are we called to do as the royal priesthood? To regularly go before God, carrying each other's names and burdens before him, regularly lighting the way to God, and regularly making intercession for people. Every day, twice a day, we could mimic the priest in this way as we commit to pray for one another, as we commit to feel what one another feels, to sympathize with each other in our weaknesses rather than stay a healthy distance away and judge one another. Oh, you have that sin? Well, I don't want that. So I'm going to stay in this group of people. You know, I see that weakness in you. That looks like a mess. And you know what? That doesn't look like it's going to be a quick fix. So I'm going to, as, as subtly as ever, just kind of stay this way in my other corner of the church. What if Jesus would have stayed away because our mess was too big? Where would we be? We would still be making these sacrifices. We would still need this man-made construct for religion. But he has come and as the better high priest, he has come near, Emmanuel. And he touched our disease. He touched our sin. He took it on him. Once and for all, he made that sacrifice. We should reflect him in this way by getting in each other's messes and taking intercession seriously, building it into our daily routine, getting an app that prompts us every hour to pray for our sisters in Christ. We are amazed that Jesus was a better tabernacle. We are blown away that he entered into the tent of human skin, that he might tell us about God. We are so thankful that he is the better priest, right? That he goes to God on our behalf. We are thankful for a new covenant. But we have seen this week in scripture that he doesn't stop there, right? It's not just that he puts the, the sacrifice on the altar. We see that he actually gets up on the altar himself. He puts himself up there as the better lamb. It is John who said, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
Just as the tabernacle was the place of atonement and the lamb was what atoned for their sins, Jesus was now going to be the place of atonement. His blood was going to be the blood that covered our lawbreaker status and allowed us to receive mercy like in the Holy of Holies. Jesus was the spotless lamb and we see, we know that he willingly offered himself up, right? Do you remember two weeks ago, right as we were starting the study of the tabernacle, we noted that God wanted the Israelites to willingly bring their offering. Was that not a sweet little hint that that is how Jesus would provide? We see that his blood seals a much better covenant for us, that it secures for us an eternal redemption. The lambs and the rams and whatever else was sacrificed, those were a shadow. Jesus, as the Lamb of God, is the reality. The reality is much better. Jesus allowed his flesh to be torn. Jesus willingly offered himself up to be scourged with whips, to be pierced with thorns, to be pierced in the side, to be nailed to a cross. He allowed his flesh to be torn. And when it was torn, that veil in that innermost room of that temple was torn from top to bottom, more than 40 feet high and incredibly thick. As Jesus' flesh was torn, that veil was torn in two. That veil that said to God's people, keep out, much like the cherubim outside of Eden that said, keep out. Jesus' flesh was torn, which now says to us, come near. Do we see that the Holy of Holies is now everywhere for us? It's everywhere. We have access to God. Why would we ever stay far off? Why would we do that when we have this invitation now to come near because of what he did for us? A lot of these truths reminded me of the lyrics to Before the Throne of God Above, a song that I think so many of us are familiar with. Listen to how some of these connect. One of the lines in there says, No tongue can bid me thence depart because our sins were atoned for once and for all. Here we are, ladies, before the throne of God above, and we have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. There's Jesus interceding, pleading for us. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. What was written on the ephod of the priest? The names of the people over the priest's heart. And do we not hear John the Baptist's announcement in the next line where it says, Behold him there, the risen lamb. My perfect, spotless righteousness. 
the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory, Shekinah glory, housing the glory of God on the inside and of grace, one with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. When Satan tempts me to despair before Jesus, every sacrifice reminded you of your sin and tells me of the guilt within. Upward, I look and see him there. Why are we looking upward? Because he's done. He now sits at the right hand of God. He who made an end to all my sin, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, that's describing God, for God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. You ever looked at those lyrics? See, God is just. He can't just act like he doesn't see our sin. Because God is holy and just, as we have seen this semester, by his very character, he cannot just act like he doesn't see it. But that justice is satisfied. Why? Because that wrath of God goes on Jesus. So that Jesus, like the scapegoat that Alex talked about, Jesus is the one experiencing the distance from God for those three days. It is Jesus who God turns his back on. And we get the pardon. My life is hid with Christ on high. With Christ, my Savior and my God. We, every day, can find ourselves before the throne of God above. Because of the gospel, because of mercy. These scriptures have lots of really good theology that are really important for us to understand. There's lots of sweet moments where we get to connect the dots. But there's even more here. There is really good application for us that that Hebrews 10 points out for us. Things that we can take this week. And as we're still marveling over the big story of the Bible, there's still things for us to do with our hands and our feet and our mouth this week. So I'm going to read in... Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19, it says, Therefore, sisters, kind of says that, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So I had you guys identify the vertical implications, those that are between us and God, and then the horizontal. And that, that's how our interactions with each other should be. It's that vertical relationship that should supply the energy and the direction and the know-how for the community within the body of Christ. So what do we see here? What are the things that we say, okay, I'm going to do this this week? We need to draw near. 
We are not those who have to stay far off. So don't stay far off, ladies. Go near to him this week. Go in with a true heart. What I see in that is that there should be more love for Jesus on the inside than even the outside. There should be a lot on the outside, right? We should be salt and light. But there should be more of the personal than of the ritual on the outside with the full assurance of faith. That means don't tolerate unbelief in your life. Hebrews tells us in other places that it is unbelief that leads to a hardness of heart. So if you have unbelief in an area, big or small in your life, go to war with it. Get into God's word, pray, ask for help. Wash out that unbelief. Come with a full assurance of faith, knowing that if the disciples themselves could say, help me in my unbelief, that he will also help us and sympathize with us there. And it reminds us that our position when we draw near to God is one where our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. If you guys have been in our Bible studies, you know that I love this pattern throughout Scripture. I love when some of you nod, like, yeah, Rebecca, I know where you're going. You're a little bit redundant. And I'm like, instead, I'll take that nod as, yeah, tell him again, Rebecca. (laughs) I love the, the parts in Scripture where we see blood and water working together, right? We saw blood as the Israelites left Exodus, right? As they left Egypt, the blood of the Passover lamb saved them. But then they were called to pass through the waters. We could see that as the waters of baptism, the waters of their sanctification. Do you remember how, um, I think if we studied it in 1 John, John, when he wrote 1 John, he talks about how the water and the blood testify to our salvation. They were something that he saw that assured him that he was saved. What he is referring to is what John saw when he stood there watching Jesus die. See, John was there when Jesus died. He watched as the guard went up to him and instead of breaking his legs, pierced him in the side. But see, because of the kind of death that Jesus died, what was happening in his body was that his his body went into hypovolemic shock. And what you need to know about that is that his body had to compensate for all the fluids that it was losing. And so his heart started beating faster and faster and faster and faster. And what that does is it makes fluid build up around your heart in this sack around your heart. See, when Jesus was pierced, what John saw was water shoot out as well as the blood. And John makes that connection through the power of the Holy Spirit that the water in the blood coming from Jesus is like the water in the blood of the Exodus, which we learn points to a better Exodus. And there are other times in Scripture that add to this. We are sprinkled with blood of the Lamb. We are washed, like how the, the priest had to go and wash in that labor. And so a question that we're going to talk about in small groups is what is it that we need to keep washing. We need Jesus to come and to wash our feet. We need to have full assurance that that blood has covered us, so we're saved. We don't need to doubt that. But when Jesus comes and wants to wash our feet, we need to be willing to say, yeah, okay. Don't be like Peter, who first says, oh, wash all of me. No, we don't need all of us. We are saved. But man, I've got sins. I don't want to give up. I keep falling to the same sin over and over again. Maybe it's pride one month, self-righteousness another, a loose tongue. 
just being addicted to pleasures. I need Jesus to wash me every day of those sins. And what else can we take from this? We need to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. We need to up the game, ladies, on encouraging one another. A like on Facebook does not count as encouragement. We need to look each other in the eye and tell them how we see Jesus moving in them. We need to get shoulder to shoulder and remind each other of God's promises. And all the more as we see the day drawing near. Let's stir one another up as we continue to be amazed at the goodness of God's word. And that is what we have for tonight.